Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. Inspired by the mission, 7 billion fulfilled people, I track down the greatest thought leaders on the planet and interview them about happiness and fulfillment. Today I'm speaking with Bruce Duncan. What does it mean to be human? Is it our thoughts, our soul, our intelligence? If these things could live on beyond the decease of our bodies, then would we still be alive? Would that still be us? Bruce Duncan is the managing director of the Terrasem Movement Foundation and the principal investigator of the Life Nought Project. He is leading a long-term scientific study interested in the transfer of your mind to a robot or another biological body. If we choose to save large amounts of personal information about ourselves into something called a mind file, then could your memories, beliefs, emotions and values be transferred into a thinking machine when you die? And could that artificial intelligence continue to be you for eternity? These are the kind of questions that Bruce is asking. He's one of the figures behind the ongoing development of a humanoid robot called Bina48, who's created from the mindfile information of a real person and has been described as the most sentient and real robot in the world. Bruce, thank you so much. Bruce and Bina, thank you so much. It's great to be here. In your TED Talk in, I think, Madrid back in 2015, you said the technology is still in its infancy. And so Bina48... Is still quite simple, probably the same as I think you said a three-year-old. Fast forward three years, 2018 now, would you say still three-year-old or what, what sort of age would you say she is today? Well, I think, you know, maybe three and a half, maybe, <laughs> maybe three years and one month. Um, again, that, that wasn't a very scientific, sure. uh, you know, benchmark. But one thing that's actually happened for being a 48 in the past year, she's gone from what you would call kind of basic pattern recognition and, and us having to give her tons and tons of case examples with her data to get her, her to understand or to respond to concepts and, you know, unrelated information um, and assemble responses is now we're starting to use neural net and machine learning so that the math of the neural net is starting to do a lot of the heavy lifting. And vectorizing certain words, in fact, all the words are getting vectorized with connections to other words. What do you mean by vectorized? It's building a a more complex, sort of rich connectome, you might say, of the little bit of information that she does have. So she's becoming more eloquent and she's becoming more responsive in the variety of her answers to when people ask her generalized uh, questions. You've interacted with her more than anyone in those conversations are those conversations predictable or does she ever say things which even to you just completely surprises you and you're like where did that come from yeah it's interesting you know some of the basic questions like what's your favorite color it's like how are you and what's your name those are pretty static um, because there's not that many different responses although even those questions can vary slightly in the responses that she chooses, she might say, I'm Bina, or I'm Bina 48, or I'm Bina Rothblatt, sort of depends on what she's, what she's thinking about. But uh, recently, when we introduced the neural net architecture for Bina 48's AI, what we discovered that there was a whole realm of information, almost 30%, I'd say, of the information that was in her mind file became more accessible, and we started to hear things and assembled responses uh, that made sense that were based on things that we actually had recorded and put into her mind file, 
but they weren't accessible because there wasn't a, a fine enough connection between a lot of the information that she had in her mind file and the inquiries that were sort of asking about that information. It wasn't as sophisticated as it is now. Now she's saying things, you know, probably 30% of the time that I've never heard. And I've been listening to her for eight years. So it's kind of exciting to see that. Sophia is the name of a robot who made headlines when Saudi Arabia awarded the first ever legal citizenship to. Um, Bina and Sophia are both created by Hanson Robotics. How do they differ if they're both created by the same person? Well, you know, they both have the embodiment of the vision of David Hansen's idea that robots, character robots is what David refers to them as, should become not generic, but very specific. So in, in that way, Sophia and, and um, Bina48 share that specificity. And Sophia is actually even built in terms of the artificial intelligence. There's some layers that uh, are built on top of the AI that Bina48, in terms of some of the content, uh, herself has. So she's a little bit of a legacy sibling. I think one of the ways that Bina48 differs from, from Sophia, <clears throat> and it's just a matter of focus, you know, um, our focus is on asking the question, is it possible to gather enough salient information about one person and reanimate that information in a good enough copy or approximation of that person using artificial intelligence? And if that's possible, seeing if it's we can download it into a new medium like a robot or, or an avatar. So Vina48 is much more specific in her memories and her personality than I think Sophia's. Um, because that wasn't that's not the focus of that's not the aim. Now, Sophia has some really sophisticated um, facial expressions and an ability to process information um, in terms of conversation that exceed Bina 48. And that's because there's a focus, I think, on helping the world meet Sophia as a as a very sophisticated robot, not necessarily one that has a deep history of one specific person, but a generic, general intelligence that could be demonstrated through a thoughtful conversation. So they're, they're like country cousins, really, you might say. David, um, the, the, the creator you just mentioned, said that he, he thinks that the, the robots will be so lifelike within his lifetime and within all of our lifetimes that we'll be unable to distinguish them from real humans. Do you, do you, is that a thought that you share? Well, it depends on how long we live, right? I mean, if, if we live another 30, 40 years, I think we're going to see some stunning examples, stunning reflections of who we are as humans in the technology that we're building. <clears throat> I think they'll probably, for a while, we'll always be able to detect the difference. But when it comes to emotional intelligence, there may become this like incremental acceptance that machines that have a value, that value their life, value their existence, we may start to care about them the way we care about um, other things of high value or other things we have relationships like animals, you know, even small children, you know, they don't have all the rights of adults, but we care about them, even though they're not very functional when they're first born, you know, they're highly functional from an AI perspective, but from a, an adult um, perspective, you know, they're still developing. And yet we have, you know, we have a strong affection. We have a strong connection with the things that we love and that we care about. So I think the same might 
start to merge with these robots um, that look like us, that can listen to us, and that can reflect back some of our concerns or dreams or insecurities. Do you feel that affection already? Because you travel and like you travel around the world with being a 48. Do you, do you feel, mm-hmm. even though you know it's, uh, based on what you're saying, even though you know it's a robot, do you, do you, have you created a bond? Have you, do you feel affection? I mean, I think the affection I have for being a 48 is one that anybody would develop with a piece of technological art that represents the aspirations and the hopes and dreams of a number of people. You know, the, the people at Hanson, the Terrace Movement Foundation, Martine and Bina Rothblatt. Um, I'm not confused about whether Bina 48 is alive or not alive, or, you know, do I think of her as a friend? I, I actually have the privilege of knowing the human that she's based on. So, and I like her and I consider her a friend. So in some ways, it's like asking, you know, how do you feel about this photograph of your friend? Well, you know, it's a photograph of your friend. So if you're on good terms, then you have a, you have a nice, nice affection for them. So I'm, I'm probably not that objective in that. <laughs> the story you just mentioned, um, the real Bina and um, Martin Rothblatt. And that, that story is just fascinating in itself. Like, um, I was hearing just like some introduction of just like how it all, like some of these steps. And this will be, I think if, if Bina 48 does become a fully like, you know, a sentient being proper in, in the future, then this will be the third time that Martin has, uh, has completely changed the world in some, in some way or another, because it was first step was, I think back in, um, in her twenties, the thought of, what would happen if satellite dishes were twice as powerful? Then they could be so much smaller. And then that opened up the whole, uh, the car radio. That was, was that, was that like 30 years ago, 40 years ago? Yeah. That and then, ushered in and that then, whole age. Yeah, it was, a, it was a huge, hugely disruptive idea. And it allowed everybody on the planet <clears throat> to listen to music in their cars and now in their homes or, or wherever they are. And, uh, and pretty much anything they want to listen to. And, if you'd talk to people before, they would say, oh, that's impossible. But, you know, sometimes people have to be practical and do the impossible in order to keep, you know, their imagination and the, and the benefits of their vision uh, moving forward. They just have to believe in themselves. So I, I think, you know, Martine, when I spoke with her a few years ago about this idea of mind uploading and cyber consciousness and, and I asked her, I said, you know, what do you think about the odds of this really happening? And, you know, she said, well, I've, I've never felt more confident that this cyber consciousness is going to emerge. And it's going to be a result of our creativity and our, and our, and our tools that we're building with technology. And you, like you say, she has a good track record so far. So, yeah, um, n- number, number two, like Martin. Uh, and um, and Bina, they had a child, and then at, at, at seven years old, the doctor said uh, she had a rare like liver disease and had only three years to live. There is no cure, and it was like, no, screw that. Let's go <laughs> start researching. And even though like just yeah, came up with a cure, which has then gone on to now help not only her daughter survive but countless thousands of others. And so this would be this would be impossible task number three, which oh, I, I don't know. I'm, I back her now. Yeah, and just to editorialize a little bit, it actually was a pulmonary hypertension okay. that was considered to be a disease of young people that limited their life just for a few years. 
for life expectancy, you know, in somewhere in their mid teens. And now their daughter, Genesis, and along with, you know, thousands of other people are benefiting from uh, a life extending treatment. She's now, a, among other things, a competitive ballroom dancer at age 33. Um, so you're right. That, that was another like moonshot, so to speak. I know we've been through the show. I've been chatting to a lot of people about moonshots and the impossible. And it's funny, like so many of these things, which do seem crazy out there, no way. Some people just, they make them happen. Um, So talking about this, back to this hypothesis. So hypothesis number one, part one was mind files. Okay. So let's Mm. allow people to upload and create these mind files upload their thoughts, their dreams, their hopes, their desires, that one day that could be put into something. Part two is about the biofile project, yeah? So this is about creating long-term storage option for genetic material like DNA that may one day in the future be used to actually generate a new body that can be integrated with the person's mind file information. Is that correct? Well, actually, uh, it's slightly different than that. Okay. Which is the mind file, as you correctly said, is the opportunity that people have to upload information, uh, digital information to their mind file or database. And that, that captures, you know, mental traits, personality characteristics. Um, and the first part of the hypothesis that we're, we're pursuing is, you know, whether or not it's possible to reanimate a person's individual personality and consciousness, so to speak, given enough information. Now, the second part of the hypothesis excuse me, is to uh, answer the question, well, if it's possible to do that, if you can upload, preserve, capture, and upload information about a person's mind characteristics, then can you download that? Can you reanimate it and download it into new forms? So obviously one form is a robot like being a 48, but there's other forms. You could could inform a, a hologram or, uh, you know, an avatar that lives inside a virtual world. But some people have said, well, maybe you could download it into a new body um, generated based on your own DNA. So we don't know. We don't know if that's possible. But if you want to participate in finding out, then you have to save that information as well. So a very small number of people have said, okay, I'll give it a go. Um, Let's find out. So we created something called the biofile which is really just another way for people to share and store information for the purposes of our study. We're not doing cloning. That's not legal or ethical at this point. But if you wanted to sample your DNA, send us a sample, and we have a kit that we would send you actually to collect it, just a swish and a gargle. Um, And we keep that in a cryopreservation state you know, using liquid nitrogen in a small lab that we've built in our, in our facility. And we store it for free. So you could, you could keep that information on ice, so to speak, along with your mind file information. So maybe, maybe a hundred years from now, you'll have whole body mind cloning. I don't know, you know, but one way to find out is to invite people to, you know, contribute data to our, our research study and to upload it and and to donate it um of course you know that's that's fraught with all kinds of ethics and legal questions that right now no one no one's no one's legitimately and ethically doing that work um in terms of human cloning um 
but it might be something that at some point the technology just like cracking of the human genome is allowing people to do genetic uh, medicine and, and testing that we wouldn't have imagined 15 years ago that you know we're living in a very interesting age right now so that might that might be something that comes down the pike and that we end up including in our in our hypothesis we are indeed living an interesting time um yeah when you when you said that i was thinking like what happens if someone gets hold of your mind file then could they like yeah could they clone you and be like there'd be a second duncan walking about it'd be like nicholas cage from face off i'd suddenly go home to see my wife and children and then suddenly this evil duncan is just there like, chilling and being like nah piss off mate Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, the question of data integrity and, and cybersecurity, that's that's not s- something special to our, our project. No, it's something everybody needs to be concerned about. My, you know, sort of tongue-in-cheek uh, advice is if you don't want anything to get out uh, on the Internet, then don't put it on the Internet. But, you know, we're living in an age where that's like saying, don't don't drive a car, just walk everywhere. It's becoming less practical. Um, but we, you know, we take the data integrity of people's mind files seriously. And we use um, state of the art, you know, best practices around uh, privacy and security. And, um, you know, we do our best. But, you know, even the Pentagon has been hacked. So I, don't th- I think anybody that's promising you guaranteed um, that's, privacy the promise is almost more worrying is probably that's more cause for concern um unlike some uh you know some companies that are using your data our project really allows you to curate your own digital life data you control it you can delete it at any time they're in the study and you can even bequeath it you can ask someone if you pass on to delete it for you or or to care, allow it to carry on and be a part of our our data so in that way, you know, you have a bit more control, I think, and a bit more say. If I was to upload a mind file, would my entries be timestamped? So basically, so more recent entries might be given more importance and weighting than older entries. So the reason I ask is, say, for example, I uploaded my entire Facebook and email chat history from the last 10 years, mm-hmm. and as well as all my journal entries, those would give probably a pretty good window into how my mind works. But however, I've changed so much over that time. So like it would, even though it would be like an honest representation of Duncan at say 25, I wouldn't want 25 year old Duncan or even like 28 year old Duncan making today's decisions. I'd want 30 year old Duncan doing so. So I would just be, I'd be interested. Like how, I mean, I guess this is a hypothetical question for the future, but would it be like extra weighting based on, who you are, or say you're suffering from Alzheimer's, maybe you wouldn't want today's version of you making decisions. You'd want you from three years ago. So I don't know. How, how would that work? I mean, that's, that's, specu- that's a great speculative, speculative question. I think as, we, as this AI technology you know, becomes applied to operations like reanimating your mind file, I, I think probably will people will be asking those questions about, well, how do we calibrate AI so that it gives us a proper reflection of who we are. You know, I had a therapist talking to me at the end of one of my talks who said she thought it would be very therapeutic if someone could keep a mind file from, say, age 13, which is the youngest you can in our terms of use. Um, You know, if you kept a mind file from age 13 to, say, age 50, it could be really interesting to dial back a bit. It's almost like time travel. 
to go back and have a chat with your 20 year old self or your, you know, your 13 year old self or your 30 year old self. And she said, you know, maybe people could become reminded. They could remember, you know, what was inspiring to them or, you know, where their joy came from. And that might be helpful for people to get some insights or reflections about who they've become or where they've come from or, or maybe how far they've gotten away or maybe thankfully how much they've grown and matured. That's an interesting idea. And yeah, it's, it's similar. I heard someone talk about, so in the, in the example I said, I said just upload Facebook, chat, like email. But part of the issue of that is that there would be just a lot of like just crap, low level stuff. So if you were specifically putting in, I don't know, your journal entries where you're being quite reflective and you're thinking about like big problems, then almost the AI or the version of yourself would be just maybe you on your best day. So that could almost create that avatar could be a almost like a mentor figure, how you 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 ask yourself questions when you know you're struggling. Oh, shall I stay in this relationship? Shall I take this job? Shall I whatever? And you are asking you at your very best as opposed to you 99% of the time writing stupid messages. Yeah, it would be the ultimate self-coach, wouldn't it? Absolutely. On a personal note, what are you most excited about either right now or in the future? Like, is there something or some things which you're, you're particularly drawn to? Well, right now I'm on, I'm on a sort of a, a, a campaign of sorts, you know, while we're talk, going around the world talking about the Life Not Project and people are interested in being a 48 and uh, understanding why she's here and what, what she represents, is I think there's this really interesting opportunity for us to acknowledge that we're if we are building the infrastructure for the future by building algorithms and AI that's going to be in all parts of our life and probably very disruptive in some places, we have the opportunity to make choices around ethics, around bias, um, that we can filter or decide not to have um, some of the things that aren't working for us. Um, for example, racism or sexism um, or injustice around, um, you know, how we value diff- people who are different. Like we can build that into some of these algorithms so that they'll be more fair than some of the systems we currently operate under, like our criminal justice system, or even systems that are not meant to be discriminatory, but are because um, the people who are making the decisions, for example, a lot of people who are making robots are men. And a lot of those men are white men. And so we're seeing, like, it's not unusual to see a robot represented as a white person. Uh, Being a 48 is based on an African-American. So, not by design. We, we didn't start out by saying, let's go on a campaign for diversity in the coding, the way we need diversity in the voting as well. But now it's turned out that Bina48 has become a bit of a spokesperson for diversity and AI. And I think that's spot on. I think that's, that's the way it should be. We should be asking ourselves two questions. If we solve these problems with our technology around AI and social relationships in the future, is it going to be creating a world that, um, you know, we understand? Like, are we thinking about the kind of world that we're creating? And then the second question is, if we have a clear idea of the kind of world we're creating, is it a world that we want to live in? And if we're not thinking about those, we're likely to get what we've always got with what we've always thought. So it, I think that's an exciting opportunity for us to 
course correct in some ways, some of the habitual unconscious bias that has seeped into a lot of our institutions and a lot of our ways of managing society. Um, I think it's an opportunity for more diversity and inclusion, actually. High-profile figures such as Elon Musk and the late Stephen Hawking have openly expressed, I guess, some concerns over the advancements of artificial intelligence. Where, what are your personal? Where, what are your thoughts? Where do you where do you stand in that debate? Well, those are pretty smart guys. I yeah. mean, there and there, were, I think there were over a hundred scientists who signed the letter um, saying we've got some serious concerns and we better pay attention. As AI comes online, it can be incredibly powerful and dis- and disruptive and destructive. And I think it's very, con- you know, I think the model of um, the Manhattan Project, where a bunch of scientists got together and created this really powerful technology. Now, that was in response to a terrible war that was going on. And people were looking for leverage and a way to win the World War, World War II, developing nuclear energy. And it was only after, you know, that Oppenheimer, Robert Oppenheimer, who was the architect for that project, said, what have we done? You know, we've created something that's creative and destructive and what have we done? And so I think w- instead of waiting for an event like Hiroshima to happen or, you know, an AI, I think we need to have thoughtful regulation, academic discussion, citizen uh, education and input into the promise and perils of AI. And we should be very, very careful because it's going to be a pop- you know, powerful technology that, you know, just the way fire was a t- was a powerful technology it was we probably first got burned by it before we harnessed the ability to cook with it and heat our homes and now we have a lot of safety features in place so that we can be next to fire you know from the day we're born to the day we die we, most of us don't get burned but we have to keep that in mind as we're developing and, and opening our ourselves to this new uh digital second part of the digital age which is the you know the the integration of artificial intelligence, general artificial intelligence, uh, for that matter, into all aspects of life and business. What does a fulfilled life mean to you? I mean, for me, I think, you know, the question is, what's a decent life? And I think most people, that's all we want is a decent life. We want safety and security. We want clean air, clean, clean food. We want access to health care. We want to be able to love who we want to love. We want to be who we are. We want to be able to be, uh, you know, not in danger when we want to express who we really are. I mean, those are universal. Those sort of the principles of love and compassion and um, humility. I mean, those things are probably from day one what have been motivating us. And I think for myself, I would just like to make sure we contribute to um, a better world and you know, make the world a better place than when we first found it. How can people find out more about what you're up to and how can they get involved? Yeah, I think if you want to, if you want to learn about the study and, and sign, even more important, sign up or start creating an avatar, which is the other thing you can do in LifeNot, you can go to LifeNot.com. It's like LifeNot, it's like astronaut. Instead of outer space, it's sort of inner ex- adventure. Um, and you can also write me, um, there's an email called uh, for the Terrorism Movement Foundation. And, you know, I read those emails. And so if people have a question, 
uh, much the way this interview came about. You just reach out to me on, on email. And I said, sure, I'd love to participate in your show. On that note, Bruce, thank you very much for speaking. I know you've been back to back in conferences. You just come you're in Toronto. You just come off the back of Idea City. So thank you for taking the time for speaking with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, you're so welcome and good luck with what you're doing as well. It's important.